Welcome, Coastline. Welcome to our Coastline Live for Good Friday. Uh, Pastor Garrick here, and what a privilege to be with you. Thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, always blessed by your gifts and love that uh, we get to worship together on this Good Friday. Uh, hey, we all know it's been a heck of a year, right? You know, you've been stuck in your apartment, your townhome, your home for a good 12 months, and things are finally opening up. But if your life was like mine, you know that certain things got lifted up this year, right? I know for me, one of the things that got lifted up was comfort food, right? Like it just became more important, more valuable. I spent more time and more money at the snack aisle at Trader Joe's than I did for the previous five years, right? Because during this season, we, we just elevated certain things, right? For some of us, uh, politics got elevated because we had an election, for others, human rights got elevated, whether it be the right of the refugee, the right of the, ho the homeless, maybe the right of the unborn, things that were important to us that we elevated and we lifted up. You know, even in this season, we saw our individual and national need to continue to grow and lift up this biblical idea of racial reconciliation and racial equality. And so that was lifted up and put in front of us, and we needed to to wrestle with that. And as these certain things were lifted up this year, as we celebrate Good Friday, we wanted to put in front of you the reality that Jesus Christ was lifted up. And as Jesus was lifted up, he was lifted above all of these other things that you and I lifted up in the last 12 months. And it actually informs those things. And we want an opportunity as we gather and we open up God's word together to, to think on Jesus being lifted up, the shame that was involved in that, the exaltation, the glory that was involved in that, and maybe most importantly, what all that means. What about that is significant for us today? Why are we gathering through the internet together to worship and to celebrate Jesus being lifted up and to start our time looking in the word together, I want to take us to a passage that might be a surprise to you. It's an Old Testament passage that at first reading seems a little different. It seems bizarre, but it's a foreshadow of Jesus being lifted up. And it comes out of Numbers 21. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. It says, They traveled, talking about the Israelites, from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food, talking about manna. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So, that Mo so Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when any anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And so... At first glance, you're thinking, what's taking place there? A little bit of the context. The Israelites had come to the edge of the promised land, and out of fear, not faith, they looked into the land and said, the Lord can't give us this land 
And in their lack of faith, God sends them back into the wilderness and they know that they're walking the route of the Red Sea, which means that they're walking away from the promised land in which they were in. And in that moment, they get impatient and they stop trusting. This story reveals the reality of two deep things going on in the the hearts and the lives of God's people. The first one is that they struggle to have faith. There really was a deep lack of faith on their part because they turn and in verse five, they say that, hey, they begin to grumble and complain against God and against Moses saying, why have you brought us out into this wilderness? We're going to die. So they lacked faith when they came to the edge of the promised land. And as they continue to walk, they have no faith that God is going to provide for them and care for them. And so really they're struggling with this. Can God provide? Can God sustain? Can, can we really trust him? But you also see this other problem they have. And this problem is they're unaware of their own sin. You see them reach out and try to blame God and blame Moses for the reality of their wandering in the wilderness when it was very clear from a few chapters earlier that it was because they lacked faith that God sent them back into the wilderness, not ready to take the promised land. And so in this moment, God sends judgment and it seems harsh at first. And yet it's the only way that he can awaken them to the reality of their own error that they don't have it right, that it's not God who's to blame or Moses who's to blame, but actually their own lack of faith and themselves that they have to blame for the situation that they're in. And you see this turning of their hearts in verse seven. It says, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. And so in this judgment, God is actually providing redemption. And he asks Moses to do this crazy thing of building a bronze snake and putting it up on a pole and then putting that pole up into the air. And when you read it, you're thinking, why? Like, how is this connected to anything? And if you think about in that moment what God's people were struggling with the most, faith, a lack of faith. What this is, is an opportunity for them to act in faith. As he calls them, says, hey, look at the bronze snake. And when you do, you will be healed. Now, you and I know there's no physical connection. If I have a snake bite, I want somebody to take the venom out of my leg. I want them to rub some kind of ointment on it. I want them to at least touch my wound and pray for it, right? But God says, no, look at a bronze snake up in the air. That makes no physical sense. But when you recognize their deepest need is a lack of faith, God is inviting them in that moment into an act of faith to say, I'm going to put my gaze on that bronze snake. And even though I can't see any connection in the physical realm, I'm going to trust that Yahweh who lives in the spiritual realm will touch my physical life. He's inviting them into this act of faith. The other thing that we see as this snake is lifted up is that not only is an act of faith, but it's an open invitation to anyone. It doesn't matter if you were on your deathbed. It doesn't matter if you were just bitten. It doesn't matter if you were bit once or you were bit five times. It didn't matter the extent of your wounding. It was an open invitation to anyone who said, by faith, if you're willing to look at this raised bronze snake, you can be healed. 
So in this act of faith, it's an open invitation to everyone. And in this crazy, bizarre Old Testament story found buried in Numbers chapter 21, we see that it is a deep and significant foreshadow of the cross and the work that's being done there. Tag, my turn. Take this line. So John picks up this story of Moses in his gospel. Nicodemus comes to question Jesus about who he is, and in answering him, Jesus references this same event from Numbers. So join with me if you have your Bibles. Uh, flip over to John 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 14 and 15. Okay. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus, of course, is speaking of himself as the Son of Man, and this story in Numbers provides an analogy to the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross. Just as God instructed Moses to lift up the bronze serpent on a pole to deliver Israel from the threat of death in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross to deliver the world from death, and those who believe in him will live. John actually refers to this same lifted up language two more times, so three times in total, and each time he uses it very purposefully and in the same way. Um, we're not going to read both of them. If you're taking notes, it's also in John 8:28 and John 12:32. And lifted up is actually one Greek word, hupsao, and it conveys um, there's like a duality of meaning to it. So the first meaning that it has is actually it's, it, it follows the historical strand of the plot. It's actually referring to Jesus being lifted up on the cross, six feet up off the ground, lifted up on the cross. That is the first meaning. Um, we see uh, evidence that it is being used in this way in, in 1232 after Jesus states he will be lifted up. In verse 33, John narrates, Jesus said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So that's the first meaning. The second meaning, this lifting up, is referring to Jesus' exaltation. So in a larger cosmological sense, this lifted up speaks of Jesus' exaltation and his glorification. So at the very same times it speaks about lifting up in, in the crucifixion, it's speaking of his glorification. And this is a paradox, don't you think? How do you have the, the horror of crucifixion also as glorification? And as I was thinking about it this week, I, I actually think that we, the church, have, have put these together quite well. Uh, we don't have a problem seeing crucifixion with glorification, and, and I'll give you an illustration. Um, I pulled this, this, this hangs up in my house, right? Um, this is a cross. You may have a decorative cross in your house. This is a symbol of Jesus' death, and yet we beautify it, right? We've made it beautiful because we've we know on, this has become a gift to us. Jesus' death is a gift to us. And so we see the glory of the cross. But sometimes I think we pass too soon over the horror of it. And, and I think a lot of us have probably heard about the pain and the suffering of the cross. Um, and, and we're not going to unpack that tonight so much. Um, if you've ever seen a film rendering of it, you, you, you'll see it. And it's horrific. Uh, but what I want to focus on for a few minutes is talking about the shame and the humiliation of the cross. And for this, I'm actually borrowing some thoughts from Fleming Rutledge, who writes this magnificent work called The Crucifixion. And she says, 
You know, today we consider the cross a religious symbol, but in its original context, it was the most irreligious object, and we've brought it in to be the core of our faith. Crucifixion was an abhorrent way to die. It was used for the, the dregs of humanity. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. It was considered beneath them. Uh, in Israel's law, it is even referred to as a God-forsaken way to die. Deuteronomy 21:23. anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Crucifixion was a completely public event. It happened at a major crossroads on a well-trafficked road where everybody would pass by and watch. Victims were stripped completely of their clothing. They were subjects of, of ridicule and often left um, to be eaten by animals. It was this public display of prolonged agony. Rutledge describes it as a form of advertisement or a public announcement. This is the scum of the earth, less than human, not fit to live. So crucifixion was designed to be this ultimate insult to personal dignity. It was utterly dehumanizing. This was a suffering that degrades. Degradation was the whole point. On the cross, I don't know if you thought about this, but the victim is forced to be his own executioner. Rutledge points out that he is not even allowed the perverse dignity of having a human being who performs the execution on him, like you would in a hanging or a firing squad or something like that. No, the crucified one dies completely alone, the weight of his own body turning against him as he suffocates. As Bonhoeffer writes, the meaning of the cross lies not only in physical suffering, but especially in rejection and shame. We sing amazing grace, but the cross in its context was the most disgraceful event. In Galatians 5.11, Paul talks about the scandalon of the cross, which basically calls the cross a scandal, a stumbling block, an offense. And I think we're sometimes conditioned to think of the death of Jesus as a scandal, when, when it may be in part that it was the mode of death that was scandalous. So no one expected a crucified Messiah. If we go back to those within the narrative, we see them treating Jesus as a king, but with absolute ridicule. If you're following along in your Bibles, you can flip over to John 19. We'll read a couple of verses from that. John 19, verse 1, John narrates, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. They're mocking Jesus by hailing him as king. They mimic how they might hail a Caesar, but instead of offering a kiss, they, they strike him on the face. And this is a scene which, which is so thick with irony, because the irony is that Jesus is the king. What John does is he takes Jesus' kingship and he brings this kingly theme right here into the crucifixion scene. So the cross is Jesus' coronation. But everyone misses it. Who would think about this in a crucifixion. His executioners don't catch it. All they see is a lowly criminal. His disciples don't see it. They flee, right? They, they couldn't have seen this humiliating death as, as this martyrdom. They, they, it may be that the crucifixion discredited his claims before them. No one pictured a crucified Messiah. So turning back to Jesus saying he would be lifted up, we have this juxtaposition of being lifted up on the cross in shame and pain and suffering 
but alongside exaltation. And in this one idea, the message of the gospel is presented. In pain and humiliation, Jesus our King is exalted and glorified. Now, some interpreters see in this lifted up language also the exaltation that happens when he is lifted up in resurrection and then lifted up in ascension. And we're going to get there in a couple days. But for tonight, we focus on the crucifixion and how Jesus is lifted up into glory. And what is so powerful is that in the cross, the Son of God entered into solidarity with the lowest and the least of all his creation, the nameless and the forgotten. And in this lifting up, Jesus initiates salvation for all who believe, and, and he's lifted up into glory. As Isaiah 52, 13 states, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The cross is the place where Jesus is proclaimed as king before the world. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And today we celebrate Jesus, the crucified king, lifted up to glory. So as we're thinking about the cross together, thank you, Janine, for pointing out the reality of the depth of the humiliation, the degradation, um, the shame that Jesus bore um, leading up to the cross in his flogging, um, having his body pierced and then hanging there for six hours. We really begin to get a sense of of not only the, the physical shame that he endured, but um, just the shame of his own reputation, of what he endured going to the cross. And it leaves us thinking for a moment about this uh, juxtaposition that Janine was talking about, of the shame and the glory, the shame and the exaltation that, that Jesus would receive on the cross. And it, it leaves us wondering a little bit as we're thinking about all that he endured, well, where's the glory as Jesus is lifted up, how is he exalted in that moment? And how can we as followers of Jesus Christ decorate our homes with crosses? Where is the glory of the cross? And I simply believe that we can find that glory. If you'll look with me in John chapter 19, I'd like to read for us verse 28 through 30. John pens this. He says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, friends, I think as we reflect together tonight on the cross, we find the glory of the cross in this one simple Greek word, tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. He has accomplished, Jesus has finished the very work that his heavenly father had given him to do. He had completed the mission that his heavenly father had sent him to go after and to accomplish. It is finished. I love the way John in his narrative in this moment, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's very intentional. In verse 28, 
in using these terms finished and fulfilled, he grabs a hold of tetelestai and the same root for tetelestai. And it's like John is leading us into this threefold declaration saying it is finished, it is finished. And then Jesus's final words, the word himself, the logos, the living word, his very last word to us as he's hanging to life and he's hanging on a cross is to say it is finished. See, in that threefold declaration, John is reminding you and I of the significance of the glory of the cross. It's the way that the Bible is pointing out to us as we think about Jesus on the cross saying, it is done, it is done, it is done. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what's finished? What's done? What has been accomplished? Jesus has accomplished the mission that his heavenly father gave him. That John pens in John 3.16 when he says that, that he sent his son so that the world might know him. John captures this idea in chapter 1 verse 29 when John the baptizer looks at Jesus when he's beginning his earthly ministry and he tells his disciples, look, there goes the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world. See, the work that had been completed is Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And that has huge implications for us. It means that our sins are forgiven. It means that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. See, it's no longer about us being good enough or smart enough or living the right lifestyle to appease God at every moment of our lives. No, John is reminding us and Jesus is communicating to us in this word to telestai, saying, no, no, all of that is finished. I have accomplished it all. All of your sins through me and my sacrifice are forgiven. They're a sponge. They're washed away. And even greater than that means that the eternal consequences of the fact that you and I stray from our Heavenly Father on a daily basis, those eternal consequences have been taken care of, that they've been covered. What the Bible says is they've been atoned for. So you and I are free in the freedom of the forgiveness that we find in the cross. And what I love about this verb to telestai, it's in a perfect tense, which means that it is a completed action that has ongoing significance in the our present when you and I are living today. It means that not only are you and I, as we look to the cross, do we find the forgiveness of sins. Not only do we find the forgiveness of the eternal consequences that you and I said, no, I know better than God. He comes in here and he says, no, it's an ongoing reality. This new life, this new life of relationship that we have with God. See, we've been forgiven. And that forgiveness makes us light. And in that lightness, we find joy. And in that joy, we find this intimate, dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And now we have this dynamic relationship with our Heavenly Father, all based not on our own work or our own effort, but based on that sacrifice of brutality 
that shame that Jesus was willing to put on his back for your sake and for mine. Taking us back to John 3, 14 and 15 that Janine read. It says, so that the Son of Man must be lifted up, lifted up on the cross, that the world may be saved, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So back to the crazy moment with Moses and the bronze serpent up on a pole. In the same way, if you and I are willing to look at the cross in this act of faith, to trust that through Jesus' sacrificial death, you and I are forgiven and now walk in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father through His completed work. That's an act of faith. That's saying, I will trust that God did the work and that in the spiritual realm, it has implications on my physical living today. Friends, I invite you into an act of faith to look at the cross today. And in the same way that we saw with Moses, that God brought this moment of judgment that became the pathway for God's uh, people being redeemed. God has done the same thing in Jesus Christ on the cross. That in that judgment that Jesus bore, we were given this pathway of redemption. And it's open to anyone. It's an open invitation to anybody who will look through the lens of faith and say, Jesus has completed it. Tetelestai. It is done. It is done. It is done. And now I am free to live as a joyful, courageous follower of Jesus Christ. So... With that, I want to invite us into just a moment or two to give us an individual time to reflect on the meaning of the cross and the meaning of Jesus's words to say it is forgiven. A few questions are going to pop up on the screen for you asking, where do you need forgiveness? What do you need to surrender? And then taking a moment and recommitting yourself to this act of faith that trusting that Jesus Christ has paid it all. Let's take a moment and do that together.